Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Fellowship of the Ring class. So, today we are going to attempt to get as far as the Ford of Bruinen. Uh, we'll see how we do. Um, I am going to start, though, as I promised uh, we would do last time and get back to Goldberry. I don't want to leave Goldberry behind, though I have to admit at the beginning, this almost certainly means we're going to have to skip something else tonight. And I suspect that, I guess, the thing that I would most, uh, well, of all of the things I would grieve to skip, I think the one I would grieve least uh, is to, uh, to spend less time on, uh, on Brie and Butterbur. So I will kind of invite you to... I uh, have some some questions I'd kind of like to sort of invite you to think about with there, but let's start with um, let's start with Goldberry. I left you with some questions last time uh, about her. I find her in some ways I find her an even more fascinating character than Tom Bombadil. Tom Bombadil is really cool. There's so much to think about with him, but he is. Um, uh, but Goldberry is in some ways more mysterious because she's sort of more. She's more. I don't know sort of purely unnecessary, um, that is, you know, okay, so you've got this strange character living in the forest who saves them and everything. Um, why does he, why, do, why does he need a wife like this? Um, so uh, anyway, yes, uh, uh, may by the way, we're not skipping Gorfindel. That's the one thing I refuse to do is to skip, Gor skip Gorfindel. After all, one of the things I want to talk about is why he always gets skipped. Uh, but anyway, um, so no, we're not going to skip Gorfindel. Uh, that's why. If I have to, I'll skip Bree, but I'm not going to skip Corfindel. Um, anyway, okay. So, I mean, w one one thing certainly is it's you know Goldberry is an important aspect of Tom's character as it is represented in the story because part of you know, I I the the chapter is called in House of Tom Bombadil, right? And the House of Tom Bombadil is definitely. It is definitely a home. The domestic life of Tom Bombadil is a huge part of his character and of what we see. His relationship with Goldberry, I think, really uh, adds something. You think of the difference. This is one one kind of fun game that I like to play um, when I'm thinking about, well, really any book. But it's one of the things that, that, that often kind of helps me to not take things for granted. It's one of the it's one of the crucial things when you're thinking about when you're doing readings and interpretations of a book to be thinking, okay, you know, not to take things for granted. Okay, given that that these characters are there, given that these characters do what they do, um, what should we be paying attention to? What should we be looking at? Um, and it, it's easy to just sort of take them for granted. Well, one thing that I find that helps me keep from taking them for granted is basically sort of imagine the book without them. That is, how would this story go? What what would be different um, if we didn't have this character? So take Goldberry, for instance. What would be different if we didn't have Goldberry? Imagine Tom Bombadil, you know, just like he is presented in every other way, except he's not married, and he doesn't have Goldberry there in his house. Um, and I think Tom Bombadil, if you take out that, that sort of domestic aspect and his relationship with Goldberry, becomes a very different figure. Um, and so anyway... Uh, several of you have uh, some uh, <laughs> uh, some good comments. Let's see. Elizabeth is thinking about one of the songs that was sung. I think she's typing. I'll come back to that. Um, yes, Sharon, Goldberry would not be waiting. Exactly. You know, think about the way that she is brought up in his songs, right? I mean, she is clearly an important element. Um, 
you know, and, and you think about that even even the way that he dwells on apparently unimportant things like the the color of his clothing and everything. Um, but that that line, and especially Goldberry is waiting, right? What is like what 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 you know what is so what is so fascinating about that? It's not Goldberry is here. Goldberry is with him. Goldberry is waiting for him. Um, that's uh, that's that that image I think is is uh, is is really interesting. Um, yeah, he would be much stranger. I agree, Nate. He would be much stranger, much more distant from um, any kind of human experience, right? He is at least sort of recognizable um, as being involved in this domestic relationship, which if not exactly like uh, the domestic relationships that the hobbits have seen. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Elizabeth, thank you for typing that out. I love the song that he sings about Goldberry when he, when he uh, you know, his uh, I had an errand there gathering water lilies verse. Um, and uh, Elizabeth is pointing to Tom's comment when he, you know, describes fair young Goldberry sitting in the rushes. Sweet was her singing then and her heart was beating. Um, I, lo I, I, I love that line. What is emphasized about her is her her life and her heart was beating um, you know that he that sort of that story of his encounter of her um, she is different you know she is different from the rest of the living things that are around him you know and his emphasis on the beating of her heart uh, I think is really uh, is really interesting and yeah Elizabeth exactly that that's you know the line that she says you know has always sort of puzzled her the most because it is it seems a little bit odd right I mean well like I hope her heart was beating right she's not one of the Barrow Whites so um, that you know we, we would hope for you know that like the basic apparatus is working fine um, but again what is he emphasizing he's emphasizing he's emphasizing her her life of course there's this sort of the 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 romantic and emotional associations uh, with I mean he's singing about his wife here and he's singing about her heart but again he's not you know not getting into sort of you know sappy language about his love for her or anything like that he's just sort of talking about her heart um, and her life and his 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 coming upon her his recognition of her she is um, you know she is apart from him she is different from she and the two of them are not they're not the same right they don't operate on the same level they don't have the same relationship with their land with their country she is apart from him but yet she is she is alive she is she is his she is his partner his companion uh, his 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 equal um, and yeah Mike could you say Mike says Demigods are happy with simple domesticity and routine. Yeah, I mean they're just, you know they're growing beans in the backyard and uh, they're living a very quiet, retired life. It's true. Um, yeah, and, and and Jeff, isn't it ironic? You know, Jeff is saying it seems Goldberry is always waiting for him. Yeah, and uh, and ironically. Um, he never goes anywhere, right? He's it's not like he goes away on long trips, right? I mean, he stays in this fairly small geographical area, um, but but Goldberry is always waiting, right? Goldberry is Goldberry is always there. Um, yeah, I agree, Erica. Erica says that she's his counterpart. She says that like Tom exudes life and loves living, Goldberry is very much alive. She's closely associated with water, the very essence of life. Um, yes, yes, Goldberry is very much alive. Um, 
good, and Giselle is pointing out the, the contrast. Yes, mostly he's surrounded by trees and plants that don't have hearts. They have lives, right? Um, but her life is different from their life. Now, of course, like the squirrels and things have hearts too, but, um, but, but, but yes, I agree. I, I think that, that it's, it's, a, it's a, you know, she... You talk about you know the the trees and the plants and the even the 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 river and sort of the life of the land, um, but you know she is different. She has a beating heart, which makes her like him, but um, but yet yet separate, yet yet different. Um, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I, she does seem to be some kind of uh, nature spirit. Um, um, yeah, Erica, he does say that Old Man Willow's heart is rotten, but there I think he's speaking sort of metaphorically. He doesn't have a beating heart, of course, um, but the heart like the heart of, uh, you know, is the heart of a tree, like the core of the tree. Um, so I, I, I take that to be sort of semi-metaphorical uh, there. Uh, let's let's look at the passage I mostly wanted to look at, which I find most fascinating and most revealing. Though my second choice, Elizabeth, was the, the bit about her beating heart, so I'm glad you brought that up. Um, but... Um, is when Frodo first meets her. This this is the scene that always seemed to me most striking. Um, the reaction that Frodo and the other hobbits have when they meet Goldberry for the first time. In a chair at the far side of the room, facing the outer door, sat a woman. Her long yellow hair rippled down her shoulders. Her gown was green, green as young reeds, shot with silver like beads of dew, and her belt was of gold, shaped like a chain of flag lilies, set with the pale blue eyes of forget-me-nots. About her feet, in wide vessels of green and brown earthenware, white water lilies were floating, so that she seemed to be enthroned in the midst of a pool. Now let's pause here for a second. What do we see here? What kind of effect does this have? Make some observations about this paragraph. Tell me, what are we getting about Goldberry? How are we being asked to sort of process the description of Goldberry so far? What do we get from this? Um, let's see... Uh, Okay, good. Erica points out she's surrounded by water, right? So that and that's that's fascinating because of course she's like up on a hill in a house. Um, so we see that even in the middle of the dry land on which she lives, it is as if she, it is as if the river comes with her. Um, because it's not just like it's water. It's not just like she's got a big bathtub or something, right? But she has, uh, you know, she is surrounded by by water with water lilies apparently growing in them. So again, she looks like she's sitting in the middle of a pool. Um, even though she is in her house, so that's that is one thing that is very striking. Um, yes, good, Mike. Mike points out that uh, you know from head to toe, water imagery all the way down. It's not just the it's not just the apparent pool that she's in. Um, the the use of words like ripple, Mike points out ripple. The reeds, like there are lots of green things. Her 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 uh, gown could have been compared to, um, but it's reeds in particular with the dew, right? We've got a dew image there. Um, I said all of that is uh, is sort of talking about water, as Dime says as well. Very good. Um, and yes, Mike, it is. The description is a slow pan down her body from head to toe, which is the traditional way of describing beautiful women. This is this that that's that's a medieval convention. Um, the sort of the description of the woman, though. Again, there, what's interesting when when you get the sort of standard beautiful woman description in a medieval poem, what you usually get, of course, is the description of their features. You get their clothes often. They love to describe clothes in medieval poems, but. Um, but you would almost always get sort of the the descriptions of 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 her features, which you know became the kind of stock descriptions which then people like Shakespeare make fun of uh, in his sonnets uh, later on. But um, 
when we get her hair, but then her, you know, so it's, it's, it's like, it's, it is sort of like that model, which is enough to prompt us, even if you don't know medieval poetry, it has a kind of stateliness to us, to it, that sort of suggests this is, this is a major, you know, character, this is, a, this is, this is somebody big, this is somebody important, this is, you know, we're getting this stately description of her beauty, but the emphasis is on the colors on that water imagery, Mike, that you were describing. Good. Yeah, and Lisa's pointing out the same thing. All of the things call water to mind. Very good. Um, and Nate points out the color, the emphasis on color. Um, that again, it's not. There are many things that could be said about her hair. Um, what is emphasized is a that it's yellow, and b that it's rippling. Again, with the water imagery, as Mike was pointing out. Um, yes, very good. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, excellent. Um, so yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah, Kit, I, I agree. It seems sort of magical that that the river has been, in a sense, brought indoors. It, it's not. There's not actual magic happening, except actually there is because, as Tom sings later on, the lilies are going to keep uh, to keep blooming all winter um, by her feet. Um, but anyway, um, yeah, good, good. Um, That's an interesting comment, Trish. Trish says that she always experiences embarrassment uh, when she reads the part where Frodo gets all poetic and chivalrous, like hearing with the elves. I don't know why it makes me so uncomfortable. It's it is something. Um, it is something odd, something awkward, and he feels awkward too. And that, I want to move to that. But another thing, of course, another uh, piece of imagery which is really important there is the word enthroned. Right? She is given this sort of regal. We see her in the midst of water, but she is queenly. She is enthroned, and she was just sitting in a pool. Right? She is enthroned in the midst of a pool. And again, I think that the, the stateliness of that uh, head-down description that we get of her um, also adds to that, you know, like medieval princess kind of uh, kind of atmosphere to that first paragraph. Um, now. We go and, or, yeah, and good as as Kit says. We t sort of talk about her 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 uh, her her power, uh, her the sense of power in her own right, not just the fact that she is you know married to a powerful guy. Um, yes, good, Jeff. As you say, it's picked up in the next paragraph as we're about to read. Enter, good guests, she said. And as she spoke, they knew that it was her her clear voice that they had heard singing. They came a few timid steps further into the room and began to bow low, feeling strangely surprised and awkward, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. But before they could say anything, she sprang lightly up and over the lily bowls and ran laughing towards them, and as she ran, her gown rustled softly like the wind in the flowering borders of a river. Okay. Um, first of all, this is one of my favorite similes in the entire Lord of the, the Rings. Um, like folk that, knocking at a cottage door to beg for a drink, drink of water, have been answered by a fair young elf queen clad in living flowers. Um, the, the thing that's so sort of wonderful about that simile, of course, generally you use a simile in order to take something 
which is either very abstract or very uh, complicated or very difficult or very foreign, and you compare it to something familiar so that people can relate to it, so people can understand, um, so that they have a way to comprehend it. Um, that's the whole mechanism of the simile, which uses like or as to say this thing that I'm describing, it's like this, right? Compare it, think in your mind, it's not identical to this, right? But if you think of this other thing that you're more familiar with, it will help you to imagine. And of course, very famously, this is the way that the epic similes um, in poets like Homer work, um, where he will, uh, you know, when the when when the Ache when the Achaeans are charging across the field, he will say things like, um, you know, picture a, a swarm of bees, right? And the, the 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 sound, the way that the air kind of hums as the as the as a, a huge cloud of bees comes towards you, and you can will be able to imagine, you know, sort of the you know the roar, the distant roar of the Achaeans charging across the field. Again, the idea is you might not ever have ever been on a battlefield, and so you might not actually be able to accurately imagine in your own head what that experience would be like. But you've had these other experiences which are kind of like it in some ways, and I'm going to draw your attention to that. And here, of course, the thing that he's using, um, the experience of meeting Goldberry. It was kind of like, you know, when you go to a cottage door to beg for a glass of water and an elf queen answers clad in living flowers? It was kind of like that, right? It's like, no, no, what's that like? <laughs> That's never happened to me before, right? I just, I have not had that experience. Um, and it's it's sort of um, it, it's sort of delightful in that way. That, that is the way that the way that the comparison um, doesn't well doesn't function the way that a normal simile functions. Instead, what it does is it doesn't give you something in your own experience, your own likely experience, to connect to connect it to, um, which you know Tolkien often does. He's fond of these kinds of similes and he uses them. Um, um, as, for instance, when he, he compares the shadow of darkness around the Balrog to wings and says it is, they are like wings. Um, so he likes to use similes like that, you know, to compare something to something else. But, um, uh, but anyway, then of course, very famously in The Hobbit, for instance, especially, um, Tolkien, the, you know, Tolkien's narrator makes similes to anachronistic things, comparing them to things that uh, that his modern audience is going to be able to picture, like the the, the whistle of an express train coming out of a tunnel, um, or you know, comparing the trees that the that the dwarves and Bilbo climb up to Christmas trees. Um, you know, you see several references like that, um, where again he's just sort of directly appealing to the experience of the readers, and here he's not appealing to the experience of the readers; he's appealing to the imagination of the readers. Right, um, and he's inviting us to imagine a particular thing, not just royalty. And you can see how he is, as Jeff was pointing out, he's picking up on that enthroned image that we get at the end of the previous paragraph to uh, sort of suggest. Um, but but you you notice what this simile does? It not only suggests the you know the regalness uh, and the the, the authority. Um, um, of Goldberry, but also their surprise. They weren't expecting that, right? They weren't expect. They they weren't. You know, when they met Tom Bombadil, their reaction was not like, oh, "My lord," right? I mean, they, they were not awed by Tom Bombadil. They found him odd, O D D, but they were not awed, A W E D, by Tom Bombadil. They are awed by Goldberry when they come in, and they're surprised, um, as surprised as you would be if you knocked on a cottage door uh, and found not 
you know, a peasant living there, but an elf queen instead, clad in living flowers. That would be a big surprise. Um, and you would be, and, and, and a particular quality of surprise, right? Um, very different from if you opened it and found that it was like a hideous witch or, um, you know, or even a normal queen, even a human queen. Um, that would be a surprise, but to, uh, an elf queen clad in living flowers, a different kind of surprise. Anyway. Um, uh, no, Nate, I'm sorry, Balrogs don't have wings. I'm sorry to, to break that to you. I, I, I should have given us a little spoiler warning. Um, uh, yes, good answer. As, you, as you're pointing out, the hobbits have not had that experience either. Uh, and uh, it is, it does, I think, point to, as you, as, uh, as Sarah argues, that the experience is kind of indescribable, right? You know, that it's, um, there is not accessible a, um, something to, you know, a simile that could be used to, to really convey what it was like. So to say, here's this, this, this sort of unaccountable experience that they have with Goldberry, I'll compare it to this other thing, which again, you can imagine, but you probably can't relate to in your own experience. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and you're right, Mike, we don't get, um, we don't get any similes about her voice, which is interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Liza, I agree. That That's a really interesting study. Liza says, I find it interesting to compare Goldberry and Galadriel, speaking of elf queens. Um, Goldberry, although queenly, is of this world. Galadriel, also queenly, is a visitor to Middle-earth. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I agree. I think that that you know we're not going to do that now. Not only because we don't have time, but also because we haven't gotten to Goadriel yet. But but yeah, keep this in mind. I want to spend some time with Goadriel uh, in our sixth class when we get there. Um, but uh, but I agree. I think that that's that's a fascinating comparison. I think that there's um, there's definitely a lot that we could see by a careful um, a careful experience there. And Jeff, you're right. Um, Frodo and Sam have not had exactly that experience, but they have just recently, and we have through them, had the experience of minding their own business, walking through the Shire by night, you know, like, as I say, minding their own business, hiding from ring rates, when all of a sudden they meet a company of high elves uh, wandering in the woods. That has happened to them. Um, and so we do have this... Um, um, we do have that kind of precedent, um, but this experience is clearly sort of different and, and, and sharper. But then notice, notice what happens in the second half of the paragraph. We've been focusing on that simile, and on the first half, notice what happens then in the second half is that she punctures the mood, right? Um, you know, she totally wrecks the whole, like, queenly thing she had going on there, right? She's looking all impressive and... Uh, and regal, and they were—they're already bowing, right? Feeling surprised and awkward. Um, and what does she do? Laughs and jumps. Notice how much Goldberry and Tom Bombadil jump. They're jumping all over the. Anyway, so she springs up, jumps over the balls, and runs towards them, laughing. Um, and we get that then that image of her gown rustling like the wind in the flowering borders of a river. So again, more river imagery, obviously. Um, but so again, she 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 totally uh, totally punctures the mood, and she does Sharon, as you say, she becomes more accessible. Um, she becomes it, it is as you say, uh, Mike, more 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 girlish. I mean, I think it is supposed to seem like that. It's it's almost well, 
it is a kind of behavior that would probably be called immature, as are most of the things that Tom and Goldberry do. Might, if they were done by other people in other circumstances, might be called immature, um, though it's clearly not the appropriate word to use to describe what she does. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Nate says, uh, whenever the characters go into forests, they go into other worlds. Bombadil in the old forest, Mirkwood, Lorien, Fangorn. Uh, it seems very Arthurian. Really, it's very medieval. Uh, it happens in, a, in lots of non-Arthurian stories, too. Um, the forests are very often that threshold to fairy. Um, uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, Lisa, I agree. Childlike rather than childish. Um, that's... Um, that's, I think, a very important distinction. Goldberry and Tom Bombadil, I think, are quintessentially childlike in the kind of joy and delight and uh, um, even even their physical behaviors, their laughter, their jumping and dancing around, um, is like how carefree and happy children act and how adults are generally too self-conscious to act anymore, but they are not self-conscious. They are entirely childlike. They're not childish. Um, but they, but the, that, that I think is, is an excellent uh, description of them. Um, yeah, very good. Um, <laughs> okay, anyway, uh, so let me, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's get to it. I shouldn't spend like an entire hour on Goldberry, however, because I know you guys are, 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 chomping at the bit to talk about the Nazgul, and I want to get there. Um, okay, uh, so then I skipped a little bit. The hobbits looked at her in wonder, and she looked at each of them and smiled. Fair Lady Goldberry, said Frodo at last, feeling his heart moved with a joy that he did not understand. He stood as he had at times, stood enchanted by fair elven voices. But the spell that was now laid upon him was different. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal heart. Marvelous, and yet not strange. Let me read that sentence again. He stood as he had at times stood enchanted by fair elven voices. Um, now, what that seems to mean, enchanted, the, Tolkien's use of the word enchanted has a, a sort of a particular implication to it. Um, and, and this I'm, I'm drawing from his essay on fairy stories, where he, he's sort of thinking very careful about these words, words like magic and enchantment and things. And the way that he uh, says he's going to use the word enchantment um, is to sort of you cast a particular kind of spell. It's not doing magic over the primary world. Enchantment is like the magical extreme of art. The way that a good storyteller or a good painter or something, you know, can draw you into the story, can draw you into the art, and you kind of lose yourself in it. Um, elvish enchantment is that ability to, you know, you, you listen to elvish singing and you are um, in not only in your own imagination, but even uh, to some extent in your senses themselves, drawn into the world of that song. That's what it means to be enchanted. If you remember in the beginning of The Hobbit, when Bilbo is listening to the dwarf's song, um, the uh, uh, We Must Away Our Break of Day song, 
Um, and you remember he has that moment right after the song ends and the narrator describes Bilbo suddenly feeling this stirring in his heart and he, he feels the desire of the hearts of, dwar of dwarves, right? He, he's thinking all these dwarvish thoughts um, and then he has this, you know, he imagines himself as going out and doing these things. Bilbo is enchanted briefly by the dwarf song. He really enters into, into that song and is carried away by it. That's what it means to be enchanted by fair elven voices. But the spell that was laid upon him was different, different from elf song. Less keen and lofty was the delight, but deeper and nearer to mortal hearts. So we've got the lofty and deep, right? We, so we have these, these high versus deep uh, comparisons. One of the things that, of course, that I'm trying to get at here, he's already used the comparison to an elf queen, right? So we have the, the, the primary thing we've been given is Goldberry's kind of like the elves, but here is now when he is establishing clearly the distinction between Goldberry and the elves. Even her, like, her childlike leaping across the bowls and laughter doesn't absolutely distinguish her from the elves because they were laughing too. They are also childlike in this way. That's what marks the tra la 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 elves in The Hobbit and also Gildor's companions who are also always laughing and making jokes. Um, but, so here we get, here's how it's different. Here's how Goldberry is not like the elves. Less lofty, keen and lofty, deeper and nearer to mortal heart. Marvelous, and yet not strange. Now I want to look at his song, because this, I think, is a crucial part. Fair Lady Goldberry, he said again, Now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool, fair river daughter, O springtime and summertime and spring again after, O wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter. Suddenly he stopped and stammered, overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such things. But Goldberry laughed. Of course she did. Now, tell me, what do we see, what do we see in, his, uh, in his song here? Um, and I love, my favorite line in this whole section is, now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. Right? Now I get Tom Bombadil. I have to admit, I thought that Tom Bombadil guy was a little fruity. Like, I didn't get it. You know, he's always dancing and singing. And it didn't make much sense to me. I thought he was, you know, I thought he was a few sandwiches short of a picnic. But now it all makes sense. Right? Now the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me. Um, now, I, now I understand it. Uh, because I've met Goldberry. Um, and that, I think, is a really fascinating thing, because I do think when he says the joy that was hidden in the songs, um, I think he's he's referring back to what he has heard from Tom Bombadil. Um, that, but really, Tom Bombadil's songs more or less from the beginning. Um, okay, good, let's see. Um, yeah, Kit, that's interesting. Uh, Kit says, The regal pose among the flowers is obviously a momentary thing for a woman keeping a cottage without servants. She makes both the housewifery regal and the queenliness home, home, homely. Uh, yes, I agree. Um, and again, notice that like deeper and nearer to mortal hearts, um, uh, marvelous and not strange. See how we can see all that working there? She is not... Goadriel, comparing with Goadriel, though I don't want to do detailed comparisons because we haven't gotten there yet, um, but, but I do think that 
some of the differences between them. We never see her. I, we, goodness knows we never see her, you know, in the kitchen and, and, and setting the table, right? Like we see Goldberry setting the table and serving her guests. Um, uh, she is very um, lofty. Right, they, they, well, like literally, they meet her way above ground, but um, but she's she is distant. Um, Goldberry is closer to human experience, and that's that. I still think is is still only kind of metaphorical uh, there, but um, but I think it does point to something important. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yes, kid, I agree. One does not imagine Goldberry doing the wash, um, but. One does imagine Goldberry doing the wash. Um, yeah, Giselle, I absolutely agree. And I think I would urge you, Giselle, to stay where you are. <laughs> she says um, it, make, it makes it harder to classify her since she seems to be more accessible than elves but still above mortals. There really just doesn't seem to be a box for her. Yeah, exactly. And I would urge you not to make one. Right? Again, we... we we, we want to make them. We want to, to say we've got to categorize her. We've got to fit her in. And, and she can be fit in. I mean, it's not that hard. She can be, she can be you know, uh, like a, a minor, um, you know, Maiar as well. Uh, whatever, we can do that. But that's, not, but that's not the point. That doesn't satisfy anything. That doesn't answer any question that really matters as far as who she is and what she's doing. Um, that's an interesting observation, Sharon. She says, elves are exclusive. Goldberry is inclusive. Even that experience of elvish enchantment, which is kind of inclusive, like we're going to draw you into our song and what we're singing, but it's still like you are the alien, you know, being brought in. And when you're there, your experience is going to be strange. You're going to feel like an alien when you're wandering in fairy, when you're wandering in elf land. Um, but... Uh, um, but with Goldberry, they feel at home, right? Um, now, now more, more, more on the, uh, more on the, more on the song, more on the song. What do we see in his song? Um, his response to her in verse is clearly the appropriate response. Um, um, What do we, well, one thing we see immediately, right, is him echoing Tom Bombadil, which is, again, another reason why I think when he's saying the joy that was hidden in the songs, we're think, we should be thinking about all of Tom's songs. Um, so we hear him repeating some of Tom's phrases, oh, slender as a willow wand, right? That's a, that's a Bombadilism. Um, but he, he goes up. The, so the first two lines are sort of derivative of Tom Bombadil singing. O slender as a willow wand, O clearer than clear water, O reed by the living pool, fair river daughter. Then the second two lines are all for Odo. O springtime and summertime and spring again after, O wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter. What is meaning Goldberry like? What is Goldberry like? That's what she's like. That is what, you know, he is, he is, and, and again, notice he's just given us directions right beforehand. Um, what is he doing? Why is he singing? Um, you know, he's why he's he's he is himself, as we see, overcome with surprise to hear himself saying such things. Um, he doesn't he did, didn't make up a song for the occasion, right? He wasn't planning to burst into verse, um, but but he has why the joy that was hidden in the songs we heard is made plain to me, right? It's joy. He is experiencing this joy at meeting her, which naturally wells up in poetry, in song, like Tom Bombadil's does. Um, 
So, so yeah, I think, and, and yes, good. Nate, isn't that interesting that Frodo skips fall and winter? Oh, springtime and summertime and spring again after. Um, and of course, we're reminded of that because within Tom's songs, we're reminded of the fact that winter is coming. It's 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 fall. It's September right then, and um, uh, Tom has gone down to the riverside for you know the last time till the spring, uh, and has collected the water lilies, um, and uh, so uh, so yeah, I I agree. I think that that's that that's an interesting point. We have. You know, on the one hand, she is like the cycle of the seasons, but she's she, he doesn't compare her to fall or to winter. She is like springtime and summertime and spring again after. Um, it is, again, the liveliness, the life, the growth and the flowering, and then more growth, right? Uh, not, uh, not, the, not the death part of it. Um, her lilies will stay green, Nate, as you say, all winter long. Um, Yes, very good. Mike was pointing to the seasonal imagery there too. Um, yes, yes, good. And Sarah, I agree. Uh, I agree with you that he, 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 you know, Frodo does sort of inherit this the singing thing, the verse thing from Bilbo. It is kind of a Bilboism too, um, though also it's. I mean, and I think you know that in some ways, perhaps that's one reason why he is uh, he's the one who's singing spontaneously and not the others yet. Um, yeah, good. Um, yes, yes, good. I agree, Mike. She is not like fall and winter. She is not like you know, Mike, as you say, as like decline and 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 dormancy. Um, she is the she is the recharger. She is growth. She is uh, she is life welling up. We should use water imagery, right, to describe this. Um, yeah, very good. Um, yes. Yeah, I agree, Nate. She is not. She is therefore unlike. This is this is one another reason um, that I think it's best to try to avoid boxes for Goldberry. Sometimes people want to say, "Oh, she's like a fertility goddess, right? She's like she's like Demeter, um, you know, from uh, uh, from from Greco-Roman mythology." No, she's not, <laughs> because she doesn't have the. Full, she doesn't go through, as you say, Nate. Uh, you know, birth, life, death, and rebirth. It's always life and birth with her. Springtime and summertime, and spring again after. Um, there is no mourning. She does not mourn like Demeter in the winter time. We don't see that. Um, so, um, so yeah, that's just as her water lilies will last. As Sharon is reminding us again. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, very good. Um, well. Ooh, neat, Sarah. Um, I love this kind of close reading. Well done. Sarah says, I don't know if this has anything to do with anything. It does. But she isn't the waterfall nor the leaves. She's the wind of the waterfall rushing and the leaves blowing. Yeah, she a wind on the waterfall and the leaves laughter. That That is what she's being compared to, right? Not just not the leaves, not the waterfall, but to the wind on them. Um, she is not... She is not just, you know, uh, we have the fact that we are characterizing the rustling of leaves as laughter is already, Frodo is already sort of understanding the life of the trees and the forest around him in a very different way. But also, he's not saying, you are like the leaves in that you laugh. You are like the very laughter of the leaves, right? Um, you are not 
the waterfall. You are like the wind on the waterfall, and the 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 sort of the 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 which. And I I take that um, the visual image there to be sort of thinking about that we're supposed to be thinking about like the blowing spray and you know the the rainbows that you can so often see in the spray of a waterfall, um, especially when the you know when the wind is blowing it out so that um, it catches more light. Um, yeah, very good. Very good. And Kit, I agree. I think that that's a, an important thing which is easy to overlook. She's not maternal. She does not apparently have children, um, which is another... And I assume, Kit, you're responding to the Demeter thing. That, that, yeah, exactly. She, she, there's, she, she has no Persephone. She has no, um, she has no child, um, which is, of course... Was the beginning of Demeter's problems, right? But um, uh, but anyway, yeah, she is um, she is just uh, she, I, I do I do think that that's that that's an interesting aspect of it. Um, uh, yes, good, good, um, right? Yes, Caden, exactly. It does mean the sound of the leaves, but again, it's that the way that he's characterizing the leaves as laughter there. Um, okay, I am at grave risk of spending the entire class today talking about Goldberry, and we can't do it. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm glad to sort of stay there for a bit, um, even if only because this, you know, it's one of the things that I always like to do when it, whenever doing classes like this is, of course, there's never any hope, no matter how much time you spend, of actually going over everything and talking about and looking at everything there is to be looked at. Um, but one of the things that I hope that we can do together is through some of our discussions to be sort of giving giving examples or kinds of models about how we can look at these things. So okay, we're not gonna we're not gonna be able to spend this much time on every character um, that we spent on Goldberry here today. Um, but I hope that it gives some good ideas about how to uh, you know basically to do this same kind of reading of other characters uh, together on the discussion board or on your own. Um, so I hope that it, at least it sort of helps with uh, it helps with uh, with that. Um, uh, yeah. Oh, oh, Caden. Sorry. Yes, I misunderstood you. Yes, Caden's um, uh, comment on is on the last line there. A wind on the waterfall um, is uh, he's saying that he's he's thinking that it probably means the sound of the wind on the waterfall. Um, I think that's possible. I mean, certainly with the conjunction with the leaves laughter, we we the last one is certainly obviously an auditory uh, image. It's, it's something that we're hearing. Um, the wind on the waterfall, but there, I guess the reason I wasn't thinking that right away is that the waterfall itself is so very loud, you're not going to really hear the wind on the waterfall so much, but again, maybe, um, I mean, if you did, it would be a faint whispering, you know, almost drowned out, but that kind of gentle whispering sound, I, I'm not sure is inappropriate. That is, I think that that might work, actually. Um, I have to think about that a little bit more. Um, uh, yes, yes. Okay, um, <laughs> yeah, exactly, Sarah. If we took this long, we would spend at least five years. We certainly would. Um, uh, yeah, but there's, but again, like, notice, I feel like even though we've spent 45 minutes on Goldberry, I feel like I'm rushing away, you know, leaving Goldberry, not even half dead. There's so much more. We haven't looked at any of her dialogue. We haven't looked at, at uh, you know, I... I Thinking of the her final meeting and her final advice to Frodo, and I, you know, there's so much more that we could look at. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. As Ed says, five years like the Silmarillion seminar. Silmarillion seminar took a full calendar year, talking two hours a week 
uh, you know, doing a two, one two-hour session every week. We went for eleven months, um, and certainly could have gone a good deal slower than we did. Um, I have uh, I have wanted to, and uh, uh, yes, and uh, Mike is remembering that fondly. Mike, uh, who's in the class with us here today, was in the submarine seminar. Um, the uh, the the yes, the originator of style time is in our class here tonight. Um, uh, has been this whole time. Um, so anyway, yeah, it, it's uh, I, this is why I really I still want to. I have talked in the past about, and I would still like to do a Lord of the Rings seminar like the Silmarillion seminar and go through the entire Lord of the Rings chapter by chapter and, and have that kind of extended conversation. You know, Sarah, even if it takes five years, um, it's mostly the uh, logistics to that that I uh, am sort of still trying to work out exactly how we could make that happen. Um, uh, but anyway, I'm uh, I, I, I haven't I haven't forgotten that. Well, let's um, okay, let's do Gorfindel. I'm jumping straight to Gorfindel because I'm so determined not to leave Gorfindel behind. Um, here's my question about uh, here's my question about Gor. Yeah, exactly. Yet I'd have to give up my family or something. Yeah, it's it would be it's it's, it's conceivable, but it would be it would be hard. We'd have to we'd have to see how we can do it. Um, but anyway, I actually, I, I will tell you that we are, uh, we, uh, you know, my uh, staff at Mythgard and I are, are actively thinking about it. But um, uh, <laughs> as Robert says, I'll be pleased to know that Glorfindel is a major character in Lord of the Rings Online. I am pleased, in fact, to know that. Um, uh, glad to see that there's somewhere he's not being overlooked. Um, but I also want to include tonight's class in that. So, okay, Glorfindel. Um, what does he do? What's now? This is about the the crudest way I could possibly think of uh, to ask this question. But what's the point of him? What does he do? What does he accomplish? What is his role in the story exactly? I mean, I mean, okay, like mechanically, he provides the horse, right? That's pretty much what he does. You know, he 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 he's there because Frodo needs a fast horse to get to the fort. Well, but that's a silly answer to the question and doesn't answer anything. Uh, you know, if had he wanted to, as had Tolkien wanted to just find some way to get him a horse, he could have done that in any number of ways, right? Why Gorfindel? Um, and get um, uh, get. Casey, I think, you know, Casey has a good one-word answer to it, you catastrophe. Yeah, now, this is not quite sort of the full, it's not like, you know, Gorfindel's arrival is not exactly, you know, the eagles are coming. It's, it's, um, I agree that it's kind of in that direction. Um, what we get is the sort of unexpected intervention of a remarkable character, right? And I mean remarkable, very vague kind of way. That is, he is... Lofty and keen, right? He he is he is a high and lofty character. He is a powerful character, um, and who sort of sweeps in to help Frodo and the rest of them when they are uh, getting into trouble. Um, but what does what do we? What is the result for us as readers of Glorfindel's intervention? Again, it could have been it could have been done in so many different ways, right? I mean, if they needed help, they could have gotten help in other ways. Why? Glorfindel. Why an elf? Why that kind of elf? What do we see from them? Um, good, Erica. I think that that's, uh, that's excellent. Glorfindel shows us that the ringwraiths are not invincible. Uh, they're afraid of him, and he's been chasing them around for days. Um, we have... Um, in Glorfindel, we see 
more clearly than anywhere else in the story to this point, this sort of potency, to use a Tolkien word, the potency of light. Um, you know, I, 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 the sort of title that I gave to this class was Light and Shadow, because I think it's one of the things, because we're going to talk about the Nazgul too, so we're going to talk about the shadow part, but I think that that's one of Gorfindel's important roles, right? Um, uh, to, 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 to say it in a really silly way, Gorfindel is important because he's shiny, right? Um, I, I, I think that that's, in some ways, that's actually kind of true. Um, in the story to this part, the story has been primarily the Hobbit, you know, Frodo and his friends, you know, these hobbits which are, you know, obviously they're not exactly like us, but they're, they are the ones that we are kind of relating to. They're sort of operating on our level. Um, they don't have any great powers that we don't have, really. Um, we've been going around with the little people, and the story has been primarily the little people under threat by these, you know, these, 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 the Black Riders, these tall, much taller, very scary, shadowy figures that we're told are servants of the enemy and are, you know, pursuing them to kill them. Um, you know, there have been there have been moments of assistance. Of course, we've gotten Tom Bombadil. We had the brief uh, interaction with Gildor back in the Shire. Um, we have Strider coming to join him, though his joining them is not like their inter their encounter with with uh, Gildor or the rescue by Gorfindel. Um, it does not have the, like, and now the cavalry is coming in kind of intervention. But what we do see in Gorfindel is light which stands against the darkness. And the that, that interaction, my favorite line from Gorfindel, and I've said this many times before, but it's my favorite line, what can I say? My favorite line from Gorfindel is when he's describing what happened, how he found the Nazgul holding the bridge. Um, because, of course, it's a very natural sort of question. Um, that is, if we know, you know, Aragorn says the road is the only way to cross this river, not the ford, but the river before that. Um, it's the only way to cross the river, so they have to go across. So you think, like, okay, uh, Black Riders, so if you just camp there by the river, you're, you'll find them, right? Why hunt? Just hang out there by the river. Um, and, of course, they did. They're not stupid. <laughs> That's exactly what they were doing. Gorfindel is the only reason why they were able to cross that bridge. But anyway, of course, the line has been... Glorfindel said that he found some of the uh, the the, uh, the servants of the enemy there, but they withdrew and I pursued them. I love that line. How nonchalant he is about the fact that that the the Nazgul run like bunnies when Glorfindel comes in, uh, and that he chased them. Right. So these these black riders, whom everyone, even Strider, has been speaking of with fear. You know, you do not fear these enemies enough yet. Um, that's the way that Strider talks about them. You know, he's got that like that shadow of fear and pain that comes over his face when he when he talks about you know how they are terrible. Um, and then here's Gorfindel. They withdrew and I pursued them. Right. Um, he, we have here for the first time light, which is standing against the shadow. We saw before with Gildor, we didn't see the same thing. Right. With Gildor, we have, in a sense, light coming in. Though again, they're not. They're associated more with starlight, the the Gildor and his elves. But anyway, um, that is the way that the scene is described. There's there's not a lot of light. They're not bright. Um, the, uh, the whereas Gorfindel is described as bright, as visually bright, um, to Frodo anyway. Um, 
but uh, anyway, so there we don't see the light standing against the darkness. We see the darkness fleeing from them, right? I mean, they come in, they don't even know that it's there, the Ringwraith, and the Ringwraith runs away as they approach. So we, can all, we already sort of see that set up, but we don't see the light standing against the darkness. With Gorfindel, we see the light standing against the darkness and the darkness fleeing before it. Um, and this is the thing which, more than anything else, um, I disliked about Peter Jackson's treatment of this portion. Um, that is, like, I, I wasn't going to get all head up about the replacement of Gorfindel with Arwen. I mean, I, I always said, and I continue to say, um, if I, you know, accept the fact that they, they like, have to find some way to give their fe the female characters more screen time in the film... Um, uh, there were far worse ways that they could have done it than that. Um, so, like, you know, I wasn't going to weep too hard for Gorfindel there, and I wasn't surprised. But here's the thing that I didn't like about it. What I didn't like is that they lost it. When she first arrives, and he can see, you know, in Frodo's vision, we get, like, the shining white light around her. We do get that, you know, light versus darkness thing. But then she runs away, right, and they chase her. Um, and she defies them and fails. I mean, yeah, she call you know, in the movie she calls the flood and everything, so it's still, but again, there is, I think, something very important. Um, we see something and learn something very important in the story at this moment when we see someone who has a true power for good defying the darkness and having the darkness flee and not dare to stand in front of it. Um, and that, I think, is, a, is, is an element which, just, which absolutely vanishes in the film, and that was the thing that I missed most. Um, but uh, let's see, you guys have lots more comments uh, that I want to get to here. Um, yeah, good. And Jeff, I, that's a really important point, and it's easy to forget. Um, Jeff says that uh, Glorfindel proves that the elves are more than just fun and games. They're beings of incredible power and abilities. On the one hand, that might seem obvious, right? But but you're absolutely right to insist on that. Remember, to this point, um, I mean, that is certainly if you've ever read The Silmarillion before, you're not going to be thinking of like, you know, you're not going to need to be told, hey, by the way, elves are more than just fun and games. But remember, if you're reading The Fellowship of the Ring, it's certainly if you're reading it in 1954, you will need to be. Because what elves have you seen? You've seen the elves, you've seen the Trollalali elves in Rivendell in The Hobbit, and you've seen the Elven King and his host, which are not, they're not exactly fun and games. Um, but in some ways it's because they're less high, right? Instead we've seen them, um, we've seen elves be kind of, Venial, actually. But anyway, whatever. Um, and then we've seen Gildor and his other joking elves, which are doing everything but saying, singing tra la la lolly um, uh, when we meet them the first time. So yes, this is the first time it, with Elrond, I guess, in his description in The Hobbit, is the only other time that we've had this sense of an elf lord and what that means um, and the true significance of that. Um, so I, I think that that's, a, that that's, that that's very good. Um, uh yeah, um, and uh, and Nate, you're right, and we'll, we can talk about the you know which, of course, we're not reading that chapter for to, uh, for this class, but yes, um, Nate points out that Glorfindel would be a logical choice to join the fellowship. Um, uh, it, it, he's the one that uh, that um, that Elrond mentions, um, but uh, so yeah, that makes a big point of that, and we'll we'll come back to that later on. Um, 
Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I don't want to get too much into the Silmarillion stuff, um, but yes, Trish, I think that Tolkien did have a soft spot for Glorfindel, um, and Glorfindel's comeback tour is, uh, I think, which again would have meant nothing to anybody. Um, and that's sort of one of the amazing things about the the uh, the quite remarkable backstory of Glorfindel. Um, that yes, this is the same Glorfindel who killed the Balrog, um, but died doing it. Um, in when defending the refugees from uh, from Gondolin as they were fleeing the city, um, yes, that's him who is has uh, come back to his body, has been uh, incarnated anew, and comes back uh, to Middle Earth. Um, yes, yes, but how little is made of that? There's not even a fleeting allusion to it. You would never, ever, ever know if all you had was the Lord of the Rings um, that Glorfindel was anything but you know, a really awesome elf. Um, kind of like Gildor, but, you know, cooler. Um, so yeah, it's almost, it's very much, Trish, like a kind of a very private satisfaction, I think, that Tolkien was taking in that. Um, uh, yes, good. Elizabeth, I agree. He seems to have some power over the wound of Frodo's and to slow the effects. Yes, that's one of the, that's the other thing that we see of him is is the the association between the elves and healing, and that's an important thing that I think that we see there. I love the way you know he searches it with his he just touches Frodo with his he touches the wound with with his fingers, and Frodo can feel the pain easing, um, and feel the warmth come back. Yes, that's uh, that's that's an important association to make with elves that um, that we are introduced to through Glorfindel. Um, and yeah, Dime, I agree. The way that he, um, the way that he sort of casts light on Aragorn as well. Um, in in Glorfindel's light, we see that Aragorn looks a little bit different. Um, you know, and we we understand him differently, right? We you know we hear Glorfindel talking to him, and we we perhaps don't well certainly in 1954 don't understand what he's saying to him, um, but uh, uh, but we will learn soon. You know, he's calling him Dunedain, right? Um, anyway, um, but uh, um, but yeah, Aragorn suddenly looks a little bit different. And remember, Sam sees it too, right? You know, there's that reference that uh, it's again, it's not in this chapter; it's in the next chapter that you know doesn't think Sam really trusted him until Glorfindel came came around. Um, and of course, in Rivendell, we will see Aragorn looking looking very different. But that first glimpse of it there is with Glorfindel. That's good. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Um, Excellent. Um, yeah, I agree, Timothy. He is a transition to Rivendell, and really, and, and that I think is is a really important role that he plays in this story too. Um, it's one of the things, one of the ways in which Rivendell looks and feels different in the Fellowship of the Ring than it does in the Hobbit. We've already been to Rivendell. We've already seen. Rivendell, but where Rivendell, what Rivendell was in The Hobbit is, remember the title of the chapter, chapter three is A Short Rest, right? It's it's a happy place. They get advice there, Elrond helps them, they find the moon letters and all that, but mostly it's it's the last homely house. It sounds almost like an inn, right? Um, it, it's it's not quite you know it's it's it, even in The Hobbit it's more than Gandalf saying I know this great hotel right before we get to the Misty Mountains. 
but but there's an element of that. It's not. It doesn't function as much more than that. There are some important things about it. We do see it is there that they find out about the significance of their swords, which fits because their Bilbo encounters this wider world, the stories of ancient Gondolin, and he, you know, so there's, that's that's you know, and Elrond himself being connected with those ancient stories. That's kind of a big deal. It opens up sort of new vistas to Bilbo. But again, it's passive, I want to say. It doesn't go out and do anything. It doesn't. We don't get a sense of the power of Rivendell, exactly. Um, with Gorfindel, we do. And Gorfindel primes us to be thinking about the elf lords and Elrond's household, and therefore of Elrond himself, uh, in a new way which we would not have taken from The Hobbit itself, I think. Um, so, um, so that's, that's, uh, that's I think, very important. Um, <laughs> That's interesting, Casey. Casey says it seems like Gorfindel is a pale king in his own way. Um, he's white, not pale, and he's not a king; he's a lord. But yeah, um, I think that there is um, he. I get it's a light and shadow thing, right? He is the, in a sense, a corresponding figure um, to the captain of the Ringwraiths that Frodo has seen. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, all right, excellent, excellent. Um, yes, I'm like way behind on your comments. Um, <laughs> yes, as Sharon is pointing out later, Gorfindel is going to run the Nazgul off on foot. Yes, exactly. Um, yes, yes, he is. Um, Yep, yep, sorry, I'm sort of skimming now. Um, yep, yep. Um, okay, good, good. Um, yeah, I'm just going to have to sort of jump, uh, jump ahead here. Um, Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, anyway, I think that these are these are really important functions to to Glorfindel, and um, it's one of the. Well, I was going to comment more, uh, you know, Nate, on what you were bringing up about his not being included in the fellowship, but let's save that because we'll get we'll get a little bit more Glorfindel when we talk about the council uh, next time and their departure. So let's uh, let's let's save that. Um, okay in the small amount of time we have left. Let's talk about Nazgul. Um, so, what are you guys thinking about the Nazgul? I want to, uh, first, um, uh, I have been looking at, uh, I haven't seen all of them, but I've been looking at some of your discussion board posts on this, uh, and I know, Ed, I know you were interested to hear me comment on your, uh, your Nazgul theory. Um, okay. I think I can't fully agree with you. That is that they're like completely weak, um, that or, or even sort of impotent, like that they actually can't or don't stand up to people. Um, that I think is though. I mean, you're right that you know when you're saying it, Ed. I'm thinking, all right, there's got to be a counterexample to that. No, I can't think of one. Um, the only thing that's even close is. 
the you know the Witch King, the Captain of the Ringwraiths, challenging um, uh, Arnor, the last king of Gondor, to uh, to a duel. But of course, it's a trap. He doesn't actually duel him. Uh, he just captures him um, and presumably tortures him to death. Um, but yes, absolutely, they um, um, they do. Nate, that is a good point. Their assault on Gandalf and Weathertop shows they do go toe-to-toe with Gandalf, um, and he has to fight them off. Um, they are not... Um, they are not simply empty things of fear, which if you can manage to face up to the fear, they have no power over you. Um, that does not seem to be how the Nazgul work at all. And there are... Although we don't ever see them you know, on a battlefield, you know, destroying things and corpses heaping up. We don't see that happening. Um, but again, there is talk about their power, their actual physical power over things. Um, um, but, uh, um, but, but, and I, I, nevertheless, I do think that you are mostly right. We don't, they don't take direct physical action. Their power is in fear. Um, let's look at a few passages here. Um, let's kind of uh, back up a little bit here, and then we'll sort of come back to this. Look at, there are two passages I particularly wanted to look at that I think are very suggestive about the nature of the ring raids as we see them here in book one. Um, and I emphasize that because the, when we meet the ring raids again later on, you know, in the, in the, in the, we don't really meet them in book two, um, that is the second half of the Fellowship of the Ring, um, we see them in the Two Towers uh, and the Return of the King. But anyway, what will happen, said Mary? Will they attack the inn? This is in Bree, of course. No, I think not, said Strider. They are not all here yet. And in any case, that is not their way. In dark and loneliness, they are strongest. They will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people. Not until they are desperate. Not while all the long leagues of Eriador still lie before us. But their power is in terror, and already some in Bree are in their clutch. They will drive these wretches to some evil work, Fernie, and some of the strangers, and maybe the gatekeeper, too. They had words with Harry at Westgate on Monday. I was watching them. He was white and shaking when they left him. Now, there are some statements here which, are, which seem very odd. Even from the beginning, they are not all here yet. Okay, wait, no, so seriously? Like, five ringwraiths aren't enough to take, like, a bunch of Breland peasants? Um, or, you know, even just, like, to break in and take on the four hobbits? Like, they have to outnumber them? Seriously? So, like, one Nazgul is not a match for, um, you know, like, Mr. Appledore? Or, you know, I mean, like, it's... Well, but it's, you know, but but again, we, we, we see, you know, in dark and loneliness, they are strongest. Okay, all right, so they're more powerful in dark and, you know, where fear is going to be okay, out good. They will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people, not until they're desperate. So they have to be desperate to attack a house because there are lights on and... Lots of people, but they're peasants, right? It's like there's not an army. There's not an army here. Why is there a threat? Well, again, this is why I think what Strider is cueing us to understand is obviously not to be thinking in those kinds of simple quantity. Like we can't be thinking in. This is, I think, a very important thing, and it's something. This is actually something that uh, uh, Michael Drought talks about. If you've ever uh, heard of the great Tolkien scholar Michael Drought. Um, 
and one of the things that uh, that he will often talk about is basically the problem when Tolkien readers start thinking in video game terms. Um, that is, if you start unconsciously picturing to yourself, like, how many hit dice must the Nazgul have, right? Like, they've probably got all these hit points, and, uh, like, their, their weapons are probably, like, a plus four, I don't know. But, I mean, like, if you start thinking in those terms, um, the things that Tolkien actually says about the Nazgul are not going to make any sense. Um, they will not openly attack a house where there are lights and many people. Um, seriously, like, you get a really powerful, evil, you know, boss creature in a video game, and attack, you know, have him attack a house with any number of peasants with two or three hit points each, uh, and it's not going to be, <laughs> you know, it's not going to be a fight. It doesn't make any sense. What Strider is telling us, we can't think that way. Um, that's not how their power works. That's not how any of this works. We are told that the Prancing Pony is, to the Nazgul, a fortress which they would have to be desperate to attack, and which they would need to marshal all of their forces. They would need all nine of them there uh, to attempt it. Why would that be? Well, again, it doesn't make sense in sort of simple quantified video game kinds of terms. Um, if we're just thinking in terms of sort of pragmatic attack and defense, um, that's not how it, how it works. It was with asked, do they draw strength from each other? Yeah, they seem to. They seem to. Um, and, uh, yeah, Caden uh, is saying Sauron is not at his full power yet. Um, no, he's not. And that's important, but it's not yet... Even that, I think, is not... Um, yeah, I, 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 this was... It was in... Where was I? Oh, yeah, it was in one of the... Riddles in the Dark episodes with Dave, where I was joking about the, the you know having a, a Sauron's power meter to sort of say you know Sauron is gaining strength, he's gaining power, uh, you know let's check in on the on the on the little meter, is he in the green yet? Um, uh, it, obviously, we can't quantify the increase of Sauron's power like that. What, you know the the way that Tolkien talks about it. Um, I mean, is Sauron much more powerful in the Return of the King than he is now? Um, you know, in September, I. I you know, at this point in the story, um, I, do, I don't think so. But what we're told, like the kind of language that Tolkien uses about that is the hour had not yet come, right? The hour comes for the Lord of the, of the Ringwraiths when um, he leads his army out of Minas Morgul. That is, um, and remember, that's how the Witch King talks too. Fool, he says to Gandalf in the gates of Minas Tirith, this is my hour, right? That's the time of the revelation of his power. Um, that's, this is not his hour yet. Um, and so I don't think it's a question of Sauron isn't there yet. Um, but, uh, but again, it's, um, it's, it's different. And I don't think... Um, I, I know that there's been some debate about sort of distance. I don't see it as a distance thing um, from Sauron. That is, I don't see, I don't see much evidence to support that. Um, Gandalf doesn't seem worried about that. Um, yeah, I, I just I don't I don't I don't think so. Um, but uh, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Um, how do we understand? Let's go back. Let's go back to the passage here. 
how are we, if we don't understand it in video game terms, if we can't understand it in terms, you know, if, if we should not be, as it seems obvious we shouldn't, be thinking in, you know, uh, hit point and how much damage your sword does terms here, um, how should we be thinking about it? Well, I always hate using this kind of language because it always sounds, I, I hate sounding English teachery because I, I always, um, as a student, especially as a high school student, was very suspicious of this kind of terminology because it always sounded like BS to me. And sometimes I think it was BS. Um, that is, and it's, and still to this day, it is the kind of language that critics use, I think, when they are wanting to make what they're saying sound more impressive than it is. But to be thinking symbolically rather than thinking um, sort of materialistically about the Nazgul, in dark and loneliness, they are strongest. They are associated with the dark. They are, they, are, they are not just associated with fear. They are practically fear embodied. Fear is the impact they have on other people. Um, and the prancing pony. What do we know about the prancing pony? Why is it in... It seems to be. We are told that it is in some sense antithetical to them, that they would have a hard time. Obviously, there's no physical explanation for this. The people in there, with the exception of Strider, are not any threat to them physically. Um, presumably, they could overpower them one-on-one. -on -one. Um, the the house itself, like, you know, Butterbur is like, they shan't get into the pony so easy. No, actually, it turns out he's right about that. But it's not because, like, oh, we have, like, you know, thick doors and it's it's a highly defensible fortification. It's not. It's an inn. Um, you know, so, um, again, we can't think of it in material terms. But we can think about it symbolically. What we see in the Prancing Pony, and this, by the way, I've got, I've, I've, like, my whole day has been complaining about the movies. You know, I, 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 I often, as probably you guys know, spend a lot of time defending the Peter, the Peter Jackson films. Uh, today I've been grumbling about them from one end of the day to the next in a long Riddles in the Dark episode this morning and now, uh, and now several times here in class tonight. But I think one of the things that we see is that, um, one of the things that we can see the Prancing Pony is a place of light and warmth and friendliness. And this was another thing. It's getting to my film complaint. I, I strongly dislike the Prancing Pony. I think what they, I, I understand what they do. It kind of works. I, 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 I can appreciate its function in the film, the fact that it's sort of scary and intimidating and dark because they're just out of the, it's the first experience we see of them outside the Shire in the big, scary, rough world um, that they don't understand that lies outside the pretty and bucolic and kindly Shire. I totally get that. It kind of works in the film. I'm okay with that. But we totally... But, but it comes at a big cost, and a cost I wouldn't have been willing to pay um, had I been making the film. And that is we lose exactly the thing that makes the Prancing Pony uh, such an obstacle to the Nazgul. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, it's as uh, as as good as several... as. Elizabeth says, it's a place of joy and fun where people go to relax and enjoy themselves. Yes, exactly. The threat, the threat that Frodo and the others face um, is not that they're likely to get roughed up and mugged, as it looks like in the film, but rather that, uh, that it's a place where they're going to be so comfortable and so happy that, uh, that you know, they're going to let their guard down, which in fact is what happens. Um, good. It's, as Nate says, it's a place full of companionship and camaraderie and lots of light, both literal and metaphorical. Absolutely, it is. Um, 
yeah, companionship and light says says D Mays. It's it's exactly the opposite of dark and loneliness, right? It is the it is the it is the perfect opposite of dark and loneliness. Um, so uh, so yeah, exactly as uh, Mike says, it's the opposite of lonely. It's connectedness. It's fellowship. Um, uh, yeah. So I think that that's. Um, uh, yeah, Mike's, what, are you the, the, the one in the film uh, was like the cantina from Star Wars yeah yeah it was it was at least it plays the same role right just as in Star Wars Luke goes into the cantina and it's like him going into the rough world like you know bumpkin Luke leaving the farm for the first time that's exactly the role that the prancing pony plays in the film um, nobody gets shot um, but uh, but yeah exactly no, I, I agree that that is the role that it plays um, but again but this is what we lose um, uh, yeah yeah exactly um, yeah as Timothy says they drain the Nazgul drain strength and courage they don't overpower it because it's it's you know as as you know, Ed would say they can't right think about with Gorfindel again. Right? What happens when they are confronted by that? Light? They run away, and it's not only Gorfindel that they run away from. Um, Strider and Merry and Pippin and Sam are also there uh, with uh, f- with with flames in their hands. They are joining Gorfindel in driving the rest of the ring race into the river. Um, so that, and I think that that's it, and it's not just uh, it's not just 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 Gorfindel alone. Um, yeah, um, and that's interesting. Sharon says Sauron works less like a lightning bolt and more like an infection. The ground must be primed for the Nazgul to be more effective. Their quarry must be alone, weakened, already in fear. Um, yeah. Now, you know, I, I I suggest a difference between the Book One Nazgul and the Nazgul that we meet later on because they are different. And again, I don't think it's just because Sauron is more powerful. I mean, he. He's acting more powerfully, but it's because his hour has come. His hour hasn't come yet. And the Nazgul, um, they're not... And again, I don't think... I don't see any strong reason to think that it has to do with distance. Um, And the primary reason I say this is because of Angmar. Angmar is even farther away. Um, And uh, yet the Witch King seemed to be doing fine up in Angmar um, back in the day. But, um, uh, yeah... Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Sarah, I agree. I I think the uh, um, your your recollection of the line of the relevant line in the the One Ring uh, verse is 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 apt here. Uh, Nine for mortal men doomed to die, as Sarah reminds us. This this doom and the sort of the 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 desolation that mortals so often feel, uh, feel in the face of the faith of mankind is, uh, is the thing that's associated with them, right? That is, they are motivated, they were motivated to take up their rings of power in part out of fear, in fear of death. Um, they, are, um, they are made immortal by the rings. They, are, they escape death, um, but they don't really escape, right? Um, what they find is more horrible. But they are connected with fear, even as they say their own fear from the beginning. Um, Nate, yeah, good point. The, the knife in Frodo does act like an infection. It, it acts, acts very much um, like an infection. Um, 
yeah, they and, and this is why you know as I've always said, the Ringwraiths are not they're not bringing their A game in the Shire. The Shire is like one big prancing pony. <laughs> Remember the Shire. No one's ever murdered anybody there. They don't live in fear. They don't. Um, you know, there is a lot of light and camaraderie in the Shire. The Shire, from one end to the next, is like the opposite of dark and loneliness. Um, they are weak in the Shire. Um, presumably, still strong enough to drag off Frodo and and uh, and and kill him. Um, but uh, you know, if they were to have caught him. But, um, but yeah, they they are they are clearly weakened. Um, there is power in the Shire, um, as we will be told in the Council of Elrond. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Sharon, great question. Sharon says, "Why do you think they cast aside their hoods and cloaks at the ford?" I think that is a recognition of the fact that Frodo is almost to them. That he is being drawn over into the wraith world, into sort of the spirit world that they are operating in. Um, they are sort of revealing themselves to him. Um, Aragorn describes the robes they wear as giving shape to their nothingness, um, or maybe that's Gandalf. But anyway, their robes are described as giving shape to their nothingness. Um, if they went without their robes, they would be just pretty much invisible. Um, but they're not invisible to Frodo anymore. And I think that it's sort of a recognition of that, um, that they are sort of bearing their faces to him because they're sort of showing him that he is connected with them. It is Gandalf. That's what I, th I had an immediate second thought as soon as I said that, Robert. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, good. Um, Yes, and Nate, I agree. The effect of the ring on Frodo and people like Boromir is also like an infection, but it's different. Certainly different from uh, um, from the knife. Um, yeah, Mike, that's a great point. Um, I like you know. Mike says uh, he loves how Harriet Westgate is personalized. He's not an anonymous victim. Strider knows Harry. Strider doesn't know if Harry's okay or not. Um, yeah, I, I, I was watching them. He was white and shaking when they left him. There's some sympathy being raised for Harry. Um, uh, and, and Harry, I think, is... is We get these three characters that he introduces, right? There's Bill Fernie, who's a bad egg, right? He's, he's just... He's a bad apple um, through his own choices. Um, we have these unknown people, the strangers, who are coming, who might be spies already, but then there's Harry. Um, and... Uh, Harry is somebody who is just spoken of by name, his first name, not his last name. He's Harry. He's not Fernie. Um, it is, it is, you know, like a, a, um, as if Strider is on a first name basis with him, um, and uh, and yet he sees Harry affected by the Nazgul. Um, so I agree, Mike. I think that that's that, that's an interesting that's an interesting thing. Um, yeah, as Mike says, the Strider's description is abstract until the last sentence, which brings the whole thing to life. It does really sort of personal personalize it there. Um, uh, yeah, good, good. Um, let me uh, look at... We're just about out of time here, but l let me look at one other passage, which is sort of talking a lot about being a wraith. Um, this is uh, Strider, of course, explaining in the... Um, 
down under Weathertop. They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys, and in the dark they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are most to be feared, and at all times they smell the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. Senses, too, there are other than sight or smell. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here, and before we saw them, they feel ours more keenly. Also, he added, and his voice sank to a whisper, the ring draws them. Okay. Now, what do we learn here? I've already vaguely said, and I have vaguely said on many other occasions, things like the wraith world, the spirit world. Um, there is a kind of access to an alternative and purely spiritual reality that um, that Gandalf alludes to later on, that Aragorn alludes to here, and we see this not only of the Nazgul, but also of Glorfindel's. Um, Glorfindel has presence in that, has that kind of a spiritual presence too. He also um, operates in that spiritual world. He has that dimension to him. That's the shining whiteness that they see. Um, so, um, and again, I'm using vague terms because Tolkien never defines it. He doesn't give us any terms to use to uh, to to really um, to really point to it. But what we do see here here is that um, you know I notice in the dark they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. That is, they're there. They can see forms and signs. Um, which we can't see, and it's not just because they can see in the dark, right? There are things which are apparent to them which we cannot perceive. Um, yes, Nate, they're exactly like Gollum, desiring and hating it. That's a that's a direct echo, um, and we should remember, of course, this is what they have in common. Um, they are the natural end result that Gollum himself has stopped short of. Gollum is not wholly ruined, remember, as Gandalf says. Um, he's not quite there. Um, Yes, good, good. Um, yeah, very good. G Giselle just said exactly the same thing. Very good. Yes, exactly. About Gollum. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good. Um, okay, let's see. Mike says... Um, yeah, the noonday sun, the contrast to the cold hour before dawn when they are strongest. Um, yes, yes. But yeah, now notice the noonday sun. The sun is a physical object, right? But it apparently has power over this sort of spiritual dimension, and, um, aspect, whatever it is. Um, the sun has power over that too. Um, and they interact. They they can smell. They can feel. Um, <laughs> do the Nazgul call their rings precious? Uh, we don't see them do so, right? Uh, but it's a good question. Do they hate their own rings? The thing is, the um, you know, do they have that same kind of love hate relationship? And I would say no, they don't. Because they've gone for that's what it means to become a wraith. That's why Gollum isn't. The fact that Gollum is conflicted that way, the fact that he still has any kind of revulsion at the ring, you know, uh, you know that he hates and loves the ring as he hates and loves himself. The fact that he has both hatred and it's really the hatred that is ironically kind of the good sign, right? Um, it is when he ceases to be bothered by it that he will have completed 
uh, his journey to the dark side. I mean, his uh, 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 conversion to uh, wraith form. Um, so they certainly don't have their same uh, their same uh, the same relationship with it, but probably have gone past it. Um, um, so Gollum and Wraith, yes, yes, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, Gollum had the ring for five hundred years, but remember, as Gandalf says, he didn't wear it all that much. Um, becoming invisible is to enter into that Wraith world. It is, it is to, you know, that that's why you can't be seen anymore because you are basically like crossing that boundary uh, into the the Wraith world, into that spirit world. That's why Frodo can see them when he's wearing the ring and why nobody else can see him when he's wearing the ring. That's how, in the Fellowship of the Ring, Tolkien contextualizes the invisibility that is given by the ring. Um, so would... Um, would uh, um, would the ring wraiths uh, would Gollum have become a wraith? Yes, yes, he would have eventually in time. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Sarah, it's a good question. You know, are the Nazgul even conscious of their situation? I should say. Um, Well, I mean, we don't know. I mean, we don't know. You know, we're not given like the the internal thoughts of the wraiths. They don't seem conflicted, um, and but they are very thoroughly enslaved. Their wills are very thoroughly enslaved to Sauron. This is why they're they are bound to him, um, and that's why they um, that's why they they perish. Timothy is urging us to keep in mind this reference to the noonday sun when we get to the bridge of Casa Doom. I agree. We'll talk about that then. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, Sarah. Part of Gollum's issue is, as you say, batting back his wraithiness. Uh, <laughs> I, I like that. Yes, yes, in a sense. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Elizabeth, you're pointing to one of the big issues and, and one that I have been avoiding, we haven't even talked about yet, in Riddles in the Dark. Of course, um, that is the root of what Peter Jackson did in the films when he has Frodo put on the ring and you have that sudden, like, you know, you see the eye in the distance and everything looks all trippy and you hear the voiceover. Um, uh be, you know th that's his sort of you know like entering into the wraith world and everything looks strange. There's some sort of sense in that. There's some precedence for that. Except yeah, Bilbo never noticed. It wasn't like that for Bilbo. Um, clearly, it wasn't. Um, and nor is it like that for Frodo. Frodo doesn't see. It's it's. Well, I mean, again, there are things which are simply different. I mean, remember, The Hobbit is written long before the Lord of the Rings, and although Tolkien does go back and make some changes in The Hobbit to make it. Um, fit better with the development of the ring that he uh, does, um, it's quite clear that had he had this idea of the ring in mind, he would have written The Hobbit differently. That's why he started, did you know that he rewrote The Hobbit, or started to? He actually wrote several chapters of the rewritten Hobbit um, in the style of The Lord of the Rings. He's just going to start at the beginning and do the whole thing over again. Um, and make it not a children's book, and make it sort of again with the, like the tone and register of the Lord of the Rings, and consonant with the Lord of the Rings from the beginning. He started doing that, wrote quite a bit, um, and then stopped. Um, 
sort of mercifully, I think. Um, but anyway, yeah, it, that is something that is just it, it just doesn't um, it, it it's it doesn't it doesn't fully fit. Um, Hmm. Timothy, that's a good point. Timothy says that they they are the ring wraiths are tormented, not conflicted. Um, yeah, Ed says there's some confusion as to this is what I'm thinking about. Ed says there's some confusion as to whether the Nazgul wear the rings or whether they're held by Sauron. Um, there is that that line that you're quoting that you know that he holds the nine. I don't think that that must mean that he has them on him, that he carries them in a pouch, or that he wears them on his fingers. Um, if the ringwraiths were wearing their rings, it would be equally true that Sauron holds the nine, because they are his slaves. Um, he clearly does have uh, the, the, the those of the seven that he has recovered, he clearly does keep uh, you know, like he—I don't know where he holds them. You know, he's got them in a safe deposit box somewhere. But, uh, but the nine—I um, think they do wear their rings. Um, I don't think Sauron has their rings on his fingers. Um, I don't think he's—I don't think he holds them literally. I think he holds them like has ownership of them, has possession of them. Um, they are accounted for. And they are in the and they are in the domain of Sauron. Um, but if I, but again, there is some ambiguity about that. But I think that they do. Um, right? <laughs> Michael says they would fit, right? He's got nine fingers, right? The, uh, <laughs> the, the, he has he has he has just enough. True, true. Uh, but you know that would that would have created an issue for uh, uh, Isildur, wouldn't it? Right? Like, oh crap, he's wearing ten rings. Which one is? Which one do I cut off? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, there's so much. Um, so Nate asked why I'd be discussing J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, rewrite in my book. No, my book is just on the 1937. I only do the Hobbit story, and I deliberately avoid talking about the later versions of it, because I'm trying to do the, like, original Hobbit on its own ground. I mean, I don't go back just to the first edition. I mean, I talk about, like, Chapter 5, the Riddles in the Dark chapter, um, as it as it is, you know, out there now. But I deliberately don't talk about it, but I will talk about it in the class that I'm teaching on the Hobbit this fall at Mythgard. Um, we're going to be reading all of the, the, uh, the, the documents. We'll be looking from the initial scraps of manuscript where he started writing down the Hobbit story um, all the way through his later rewritings. We're going to read all of that and look at the way that the story was developing in Tolkien's mind. So we'll do that then, but not, uh, but not in my book. Um, yes, Caden, exactly. It's the one without the gem. But uh, uh, you know, seriously, do you want to do that calculation? When you, he, he wouldn't have known that, right? It's like, right, which of these things is not like the other? Um, not a game you want to play when you're standing on Sauron's neck. Um, good, good. Let's see. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so many things to talk about. Um, Yeah, 
Mike, I want to end with your comment there. Uh, Mike is saying, uh, after um, Strider's whisper, he says, Frodo looks around wildly. Strider, in describing their power of terror, has terrorized Frodo. Um, Strider has to touch him with his hand to calm him. Yes. And, of course, what does he primarily do to calm them? He sings for them the story of Baron and Luthien. Um, and this is a moment, I've talked about this many times, it's, it's one of, to, to me, it's one of the most fascinating um, moments in all of book one of The Lord of the Rings when Strider is trying to encourage them. He wants to sing them a song that will give them heart, that will give them hope, that, that will help to essentially what he's doing, he's fighting the Nazgul already because their strength is in dark and loneliness and fear and terror. And so by removing the terror from the hobbits, he is actually um, fighting against the Nazgul. He will make them weaker if they are less afraid when they come. Um, and what is so fascinating is that he turns away from telling the obvious story. He's given the, you know, do you know any more of that song, you know, the Gilgalad song that, that, that Sam just started singing? Um, but instead of saying, yeah, Hey, let's sing about the time when Sauron got his butt kicked, right? Let's sing about the time when, um, when, when the ring was taken away from him, um, and Sauron, and you know, the evil was defeated by the united forces of good. It's a feel-good story, very relevant for this moment. Um, it would seem to be the most obvious kind of defiance of the power that is uh, coming after them to 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 tell them that story. But he's like, no, 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 we're not going to go there. Instead. Let's. I'll say. I'll. I'll tell you the story of Baron and Luthien, and you'd be like, "Well, okay, that's kind of an upper too." I mean, you know, it can be anyway. Parts of it. Um, you know, the, I, again, like little people, comparatively little people. There were huge people, but comparatively little people. Uh, uh, that is compared to the size of the evil they were going after. Um, against you know, indescribably, uh, in, against indescribable odds, defying evil and and uh, and overcoming and regaining light and everything. You know the. the the recovery of the Silmaril. Um, okay, th that would be encouraging, but then when he gives, when Strider gives his prose description of the story of Baron and Luthien after he sings his song, he, he makes it even sadder than it would be otherwise. He emphasizes the sad parts. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, makes it sound like, uh, like it was just really a depressing story. But that song does lift their hearts. That song does give them hope. And the way, sort of, Tolkien's choice, the way that he uses the Baron and Luthien song, what he emphasizes in that poem, which is one of the most beautiful poems that Tolkien ever wrote. I love the verse version of Baron and Luthien that he gives us there in those, uh, in those passages. By the way, um, I don't know if you know this either. Tolkien wrote, um, was writing a long epic poem version of the Baron and Luthien story, The Lay of Lathian. Um, he wrote thousands of lines um, of, the, uh, of the verse version of the Baron and Luthien story. So he had a lot of material to draw from uh, in making this poem, though it's not a quotation from that poem. Um, anyway, there is, uh, um, uh, there is, uh, yeah, Caden, I agree, he skips, he skips, he skips the Silmaril. Um, Aragorn does. He doesn't tell, like, the hopeful part, like, the take-home message uh, for Aragorn from the, you know, is not, um, 
so you know what? Little people can accomplish big things and can defy evil, and it can work out for them even against the odds. Um, that would be a relevant, it would seem, take-home message to the hobbits at that particular moment, right? Um, but that's not where he goes, there, and so they have lost her whom they most loved. Um, he emphasizes the sadness. He emphasizes the loss. It's incredible. Um, but um, anyway... Um, Good, Timothy. I think that that's an important element. Um, he says, sorrow and sadness instills empathy and identification. It's the antidote uh, to loneliness and isolation. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, in some ways, I think that that that, that it is. Um, and of course, we will, uh, you know, we, we come back to this in the story later on. You'll remember that Sam goes to the same place when uh, he and Frodo are on the stairs of Kirith Ungol and a little concerned. Um, he also goes back to the Baron and Luthien story that uh, that Aragorn first tells them here. Um, yes, Liza, as you say, it's a story of sacrifice. Um, it's part of what is so uplifting is that there are people who will sacrifice everything, uh, you know, for love, for good. Yes, I agree. Um, yeah, yeah, very good. Um, and of course, yes, Trish. It's also sad. He's he is clearly thinking of, uh, of of himself, and there is a certain amount of. I'm not sure if I'd go with hopelessness, but sadness anyway, um, melancholy um, about it. But again, it's sorrow is a beautiful thing in the Lord of the Rings. In Tolkien's world, sorrow is powerful. Sorrow is a powerful force for good. It's not. There is a huge gulf between sorrow and despair. Uh, in, in Tolkien's world, and I think that it's one of, this is one of the places where I think we can see that very keenly. Um, and in the end, it's a good... And I think, you know, a, a student of mine, um, you might have heard the podcast that I did with her, Liz, um, wrote her undergraduate thesis on sorrow in The Lord of the Rings, and, and in The Silmarillion too, and she had a whole chapter where she was talking about Baron and Luthien, and especially looking at Aragorn here. Um, and one of the things that she pointed out, and I totally agree with her, um, the transition right after he sings his song to the attack of the ringwraiths does make it sound as if the ringwraiths are... The, they just have to wait for him to stop telling... They can't interrupt the Baron and Luthien story. Right? Like as long as he is singing about Baron and Luthien, they can't attack. But when the song is done, um, then the darkness seems to close around them and then the ringwraiths attack. Um, it does seem as if the um, the song of Baron and Luthien has the power, in fact, to... Um, uh, to sort of repel them uh, and keep them at bay. Um, anyway, uh, yes, good. As Mike is speaking, yes, exactly. Okay, but I have now kept you like vastly irresponsibly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'm glad we got at least we did talk some about the Nazgul. There's so much more to say as about all these things, and and we did get to talk about Glorfindel. I, there's some things I wanted to point out about Sam. Um, what I would leave you with on that, I want you to be because I want to be thinking in kind of cumulative terms. I want to look at the character of Sam and the way that he acts. He tends to be sort of a particular kind of spokesperson. He, you know, look at what he does and the role that he plays um, from, you know, especially I think from Bree onwards. Um, and we'll definitely spend some time looking at that next time. So um, anyway. 
Uh, <laughs> uh, see, Ed lost the pool this time. See, Ed never bet the under. Never bet the under when it comes to cost life. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Good night. I'll see you guys on Thursday. Oh, wait. wait woo, I almost forgot. Um, I want your opinions on I, the, the last class. I can't do Thursday night at 7.30, our normal class for class number six. We need to move that class. I'm thinking about Wednesday night, just having it the night before. It would mean having class, the, our last two classes, two days in a row. Um, I think that would work. Um, uh, and tell me if you guys think, you know, we don't have to you know, give me a final answer now, um, but I'll email you guys about this. I just wanted to, to invite you guys to think about that. Um, well, that's kind of my plan, so I hope that we can, that we can do that. But anyway, just wanted to make sure I mentioned that. Uh, thanks, everybody. Good night. See you Thursday. The organizer has ended the session, and this call will be disconnected. Goodbye.